Hey, it's Dr. G. And whether you've been a longtime listener or you're new to the podcast, welcome. Have you ever felt like you wanted to start over or reinvent your life? If so, I want to invite you to tell me all about it. I really need your advice. And to reward you for your time, I'm going to be choosing nine listeners to join me on a free one-on-one relaunch game plan call. This call is designed to help you get clear on your specific goals so you can relaunch your life. To join in and be eligible for the free call, go to discover.drgordon.me. That's discover.drgordon.me and answer all the questions. I look forward to reading your responses and talking to you soon. Thanks for your help and thanks for launching your life with me. This is the Launch Your Life podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Gordon. Today on the podcast, I'm talking about the spiral of shame, generational trauma, my first entrepreneurial venture, and narcissism. As always, I welcome your feedback. Feel free to email me, drg at drgordon.me. That's D-R-G. And for the latest episodes, go to launchyourlifepodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please take a moment to give it a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts and share widely with your friends. Last time I left you with alarming statistics about childhood sexual abuse and my thoughts about the elegance of the human brain. To be caught up, I recommend you listen to or watch the previous episodes starting with episode 162. In my experience, sexualization caused extreme shame. According to dictionary.com, shame is the painful feeling arising from the consciousness of something dishonorable, improper, ridiculous, etc., done by oneself or another, or susceptibility to this feeling of disgrace. And Merriam-Webster is a bit more descriptive, a painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety, the susceptibility to such emotion, a condition of humiliating disgrace or disrepute. Now, I think it's appropriate to call the type of shame I experienced toxic shame. According to WebMD, toxic shame is a feeling that you're worthless. It happens when other people treat you poorly and you turn that treatment into a belief about yourself. You're most vulnerable to this type of poor treatment during childhood or as a teen. When you feel toxic shame, you see yourself as useless, not as good as others. Now, it's easy to confuse shame and guilt because they're both strong negative emotions. Shame can be considered blame turned inward. When you feel you're not good enough, lack confidence and look for evidence to support this feeling. Now, guilt is simply feeling bad about doing something society considers morally wrong. They can be very interlinked, but eventually, as you look for evidence to support the feeling of shame, you start to believe the lies about yourself and the lies perpetuate into a knowing that this is the truth. And you believe it because it's what your abuser tells you. In sexual predation, there are six steps to grooming. Number one is targeting the victim through finding vulnerability, emotional neediness, isolation, low self-confidence, and low parental attention. Number two is gaining trust through getting to know the victim and their needs and starting to fulfill them. At this stage, secrecy is often employed as a trust mechanism. This also serves to distance the child from his or her parents. Number three is creating importance in the life of the child through filling unmet needs via gifts, affection, or attention, making the predator more important. Number four is isolating through free babysitting or other means to be alone with the child without interruption. Parents may encourage this through appreciating help from the predator. 
Number five is sexualizing. And it starts with non-sexual touching, like tickling or accidental touch. In my case, it was tickling and I hate it now. This causes the victim to be numb to more intimate and sexual touch. And as the child becomes more curious, the predator increases sexual contact. And number six is controlling the child through threats and guilt, enforcing secrecy, participation, and silence. This is where threats to harm loved ones and the blaming the child for making interactions happen come into play. Now, as I've said before, children before the age of seven live in a hypnotic state. Their minds are like a sponge and they'll believe anything they're told. And this is when children are the most vulnerable to predation. Overcoming toxic shame isn't easy because the beliefs are deep-seated. And since the brain loves consistency, once, it, once those thoughts are cemented in your brain, undoing them can be quite difficult. It requires you to look at everything from a different perspective and start to believe something different than you ever did before. You have to look for evidence of the contrary and be biased about finding the new truth, ignoring all evidence telling you what you've always believed is true. Now, as puberty approached, we learned some sex ed in school, and my parents also had this cartoon book about sex, and it likened the act to jumping rope, something you can't do all day. My young mind had an idea about sex causing pregnancy. And many nights, I sat next to my abusive brother at the dinner table, and I wondered what would happen if I got pregnant, well, all the while feeling shame about the secret times we spent in his basement bedroom on his waterbed. It's fascinating, though, how my developing brain separated the interactions with abusers from the rest of my life as a coping mechanism. This led to a profound resilience, determination, deep concentration, competitiveness, and perhaps a delusional self-confidence. It's shocking my parents weren't aware of the abuse occurring in and near their home. And I can kind of understand how my mother may have missed it in some of her alcoholic stupor. And my dad was in his own world. Many religions, from Christianity to shamanism, believe in generational trauma, also known as generational sin. In fact, the incest didn't even start with me. According to health.com, generational trauma is trauma that isn't just experienced by one person. It extends from one generation to the next. Licensed clinical psychologist Melanie English, PhD, states it can be silent, covert, and undefined, surfacing through nuances and inadvertently taught or implied throughout someone's life from an early age onward. In 1966, Canadian psychiatrist Vivian M. Rakoff, MD, and her colleagues recorded high rates of psychological distress among children of individuals who survived the Holocaust, and the concept of generational trauma was first recognized. This population has been the most widely studied group. However, in theory, any type of extreme prolonged stress could have adverse psychological effects on children and grandchildren, resulting in clinical anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Gayani De Silva, MD, says trauma affects genetic processes, leading to traumatic reactivity being heightened in populations who experience a great deal of trauma, and goes on to say, being systematically exploited, enduring repeated and continual abuse, racism and poverty are all traumatic enough to cause genetic changes. So African Americans in the United States and around the world are particularly vulnerable. Furthermore, domestic violence, sexual assault or sexual abuse and hate crimes are other acts that can result in generational trauma. And in my family, there is evidence for generational trauma. I don't know specifically what my mother's life was like when she was growing up, 
But when she died, we discovered her half-brother, who was at least 10 years older, had written her love letters and tried to normalize their incest. And perhaps it's more shocking that she kept the letters. Now, when my parents met, my mother was finishing high school and living with her half-brother and his wife in Livermore, California. My father was doing a physics internship at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And I have no idea how they met. I have this vague recollection of maybe a blind date, but they did meet. And when my mother became pregnant, they married and moved to Pullman, Washington, so my father could complete his PhD in physics. I often wonder if my mother became pregnant on purpose so, so she could escape the situation with her brother. And my father's misogynistic view of women came from my rapey grandfather. Uh, he married my mother because he thought he could save her from her situation, although I'm really not sure how much of it he knew. Now, while this is not confirmed, I'm pretty confident my rapey pedophile of a grandfather also abused his children. He held this power over them until his death, and outsiders described the relationship my father and his sister had with this, my rapey grandfather as almost worshipful. Interestingly, when my memory started returning, when I was around 15 or 16 years old, I confronted my father about what my oldest brother had been doing with me, the, the sex, and continuing the abuse for years. And my father completely normalized it and said, of course he had sex with his sister. And I found it shocking at 15 and I find it shocking now. So there was incest on both sides of the family and it's no wonder it happened to me. Both of my parents were narcissists and the entire world revolved around them individually. It was really confusing and strange. And as I've said before, my mother often exclaimed that she was perfect without any flaw. And my father really never saw anything but how things affected him. And since children learn what they live, the culture of our home was basically everyone for himself or herself. I recall very little cooperation and just like the awful chocolate bunny game on Easter, every day was a competitive struggle. Now the problem with being raised by me-centric people is the me-centrism gets passed on by what I'll just call osmosis. In reality, it's a culture, right? And the model was a tumultuous and broken relationship between my parents resulting in a lack of many usable skills as we aged, such as communication and money management. Now, I'm not sure what my parents' objectives were in having children. Maybe they were trying to stay together. Maybe they just thought it was the logical next step in life. And we're all fucked up by our parents to some degree or another. An adult life is learning to separate who we really are from what we have inferred about who we are from how we were treated as children. The problem for me has been learning that the universe doesn't rise or set on my thoughts or actions. It's taken years of therapy, meditation, coaching, and self-realization to understand a couple of fundamental truths about myself. One is that my brain is wired differently from many other people, allowing me to arrive at an answer to a problem relatively quickly. My, my elegant brain allows me to skip some steps, and not everyone thinks this way. Another one is that I do not recognize social cues well. I'm extremely literal and communicate forthrightly and bluntly, and this is very off-putting to a lot of people. I say things as I see them, and I have no idea how to play the game in life, business, or just about anything. So I've gotten better as I've aged, but at the end of the day, if you want something from me, it must be communicated very clearly in a way that leaves no room for doubt. And in today's hypervigilant, diagnosis-happy society, I probably would have labeled Asperger's or somewhere on the autism spectrum. 
In fact, my ability for deep focus led to my first entrepreneurial venture. At some point, dandelions took over our backyard and my parents were lamenting them around the table one day saying that there were too many and didn't know what to do. So I was 10 or 11 and I knew that if all those flowers went to seed, we would have an even more difficult time in the future. So I offered a solution to my father. I said, you know, I'll pick all those flowers, but how much are you going to pay me? Because I wasn't going to do it for free. And he said, okay, I'll give you one cent per flower. So I took a look at the yard and I surmised that it had to be more than a dollar and my labor was likely worth it. So it was always nice to have a little pocket change for the corner drugstore that sold candy cigarettes so I could look like my dad and my favorites, lemon heads and watermelon Jolly Ranchers. So the backyard was a sea of yellow with some green poking through and the gray white puff of the occasional seed head. Now, of course, this was late spring or early summer, so it was really hot out there. And I went to work. It took me several hours, but I picked every single one of those flowers and seed heads. And by dusk, I brought in a big bag of flowers and stems and began to count. I vaguely recall counting as I picked them and being super excited when I brought the bag in. And my father was shocked when I told him the number and he made me count them all again in front of him. So after the second count, the total was greater than 9,000 and I had hit the jackpot. My father harumphed a little bit, but he gave me $100 for the effort. And I love this story for the lessons I learned, that hard work pays off and sometimes people don't understand the true cost of a service I can provide. I eagerly anticipated the next summer to make another $100, but alas, I had been too thorough. We never had a yard of dandelions again. When I was in fourth or fifth grade, I made a deal with my dad. I had outgrown my bike and I wanted a new one. So he said, I'll pay half of whatever bike you want. I promptly ran down to the Schwinn store and picked out my bike. It was a blue and white beauty with a banana seat. And I looked at the price, which was more than $100, and I steeled myself in the resolve to earn enough money to get that bike and fast. So from that moment on, I was frugal. I saved every penny of my allowance. I asked to do odd jobs around the house so I could have extra money. And I took my dad's shitty lawnmower and mowed lawns in the neighborhood. I babysat. I did anything I could do so I could earn my half and get my bike. As my wealth increased, I became more and more hopeful that I would achieve my goal. I had a little silver box on my dresser where I stored my money jealously guarding it for my coveted bicycle. And every night I count my money to make sure it was still there and take stock of my accumulated wealth for the day. Some days I brought in nothing, but it didn't matter. Man, I still counted that money religiously. So I remember the feeling of anticipation when I was within a few dollars of my goal. And I went to my father and said, I've got the money, I've got the money. You've got to take me to get my bike. And I felt so proud handing over my hard-earned wad of cash to the clerk as we were rung up. But I also had a sense of loss because I was giving up my nightly routine of counting my money. It was all gone. But when I rode that bike for the first time, I knew it was all worth it. Next time on the Lunch Your Life podcast, I'll continue with my childhood, more dadisms, Christmas, and the cultural racism of my sundown hometown. If you like this episode, please subscribe so you won't miss any. Share with your friends and on social. And please leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like it, feel free to donate to my Venmo at D-R-G-O-R-D-O-N. 
and subscribe on YouTube if you're on YouTube. Please help me with my market research. Please fill out the questionnaire at discover.drgordon.me. I'll see you next time.